Well, once in a while, you just get to do something cool in life. And I get to do something cool today. I get to introduce the speaker for this morning. And she happens to be my daughter, Amanda Cook, despite everything that uh, 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 Crazy Ryan said. So in order not to just uh, make you gag and be a doting father, I'm just going to say a couple of quick things in, in ascending uh, uh, importance. First of all, she's the uh, big sister to Matthew and Micah, and between her and her mother, they've almost straightened those two guys out. <laughs> Secondly, she is a recent graduate of Denver Seminary. She got her degree in counseling this May, and um, we're very proud of her for that. Thirdly, she is, like so many, uh, a product of the incredible youth ministry of West Bowles Community Church. She grew up in this ministry, like uh, Nathan, like uh, Kara and Ryan, and so many who are here serving the Lord, and so many who are still followers of Jesus all around this city, all around the country, all around this world, who have been influenced by this youth ministry. If your kids aren't in this ministry, you've got to get them here. I, I bless God for um, what he did for our kids through this church constantly. And the fourth thing, which is the most important, is she's the mother of, my, of our two grandsons. And uh, that's the best thing ever. So would you please welcome my daughter, Amanda Cook. Oh, man. <laughs> I may be wishing that it was a, a lesson by lottery after all today <laughs> at this point, but um, here I am. And actually, I've been reading in um, the little e-newsletter that goes out each week that July 17th speaker was a big surprise, and the movie's a big surprise, and now I'm a girl who likes good surprises now and then. Um, and so you can imagine my disappointment when I found out that <laughs> I'm delivering the surprise today. <laughs> so um, every time I've thought about July 17th, um, it's been less like, oh, I wonder what the movie's going to be. That'll be fun. And more like, ah, I keep that day away from me because I am not ready. Um, so that's having a little bit of jitters right now. So if you just uh, start this morning off with prayer um, with me, that would be wonderful. Dear Lord, um, I just thank you for every single person you've brought here today. And um, each person here has come in their own way and, and um, made it here. And I know that you have a purpose for every single one here. Um, I just pray that this morning you will bless our ears and our hearts and open us up to what you want us to hear ultimately because ultimately it's your message that, that we need. Um, we thank you again. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're continuing the series on God in the movies. Each week, Todd has chosen a movie and artfully shown that God can and does reside in even the most unexpected of places. Last week's movie was The King's Speech. And this week, to be honest, I'm cheating a little bit, but that's okay because Todd's out of town. Um, actually, I'm cheating on two levels. The first is that today's movie was actually a book before it came to the big screen. And secondly, it is a story that could be categorized as Christian allegory. So it shouldn't be too hard to find God in our movie today. Despite that fact, though, I think we have some exciting things to discover. So without further delay, here's our summary of this week's movie, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader.
Here's everything you need to know about the voyage of the Dawn Treader in 5 minutes, 40 seconds. World War II England. The two youngest Pevensey children, Lucy and Edmund, find themselves serving an interminable sentence in the home of their aunt and uncle, and a cousin whose countenance is as unpleasant as his name, Eustace Scrub. One day, Lucy and Edmund admire a particularly nostalgic painting. Eustace interrupts, and just as a verbal confrontation between Edmund and Eustace turns physical, the painting on the wall begins to gush water. Soon the entire room is filled with water from the painting, and the children are submerged as well. When they finally reach the surface of the water, they find themselves swimming in the ocean and facing a magnificent Narnian ship, the Dawn Treader. As it turns out, the ship belongs to none other than King Caspian, an old friend of the Pevensies from a previous adventure. Caspian explains the purpose of their sea voyage. Before I took back the throne from my uncle, he tried to kill my father's closest friends and most loyal supporters. They fled to the Lone Islands. No one's heard from them since. Before long, the ship has reached the first island, but something is amiss. When a small party goes ashore to investigate, they are captured by slave traders. Caspian and Edmund are thrown in jail while the rest are put up for auction on the slave market. While Caspian and Edmund are in prison, they witness a disturbing sight. A boat full of captured slaves is sent out into the ocean. Suddenly, a green mist arises from the ocean, and the boat disappears with all its passengers. Caspian, Edmund, Lucy, Eustace, and the rest of the captured crew are saved by those who remained on Caspian's ship. They run off the slave traders once and for all, but now they are determined to defeat the Green Mist. The first of the Lords of Talmar sends his sword with them. The ship sails on. They encounter another island seemingly uninhabited and decide to go ashore for the night. But as the crew sleeps, invisible creatures infiltrate the camp and take Lucy hostage. The creatures have a task for Lucy. They force her to enter an invisible house and tell her to read an incantation from a book to make them visible again. She finds the spell the creatures want and reads it. As she does, an old man appears in the room. The man who appeared to Lucy explains that the mist they are pursuing comes from Dark Island, the source of all evil. He tells them how to reach it, and explains that they must bring with them all seven swords of the Lords of Talmar. The next island they reach holds a cave with a pond. Anything submerged in the pond's waters turns to solid gold. Meanwhile, Eustace has gotten himself into more trouble. He finds a vast treasure and helps himself to its riches. He places a cuff on his wrist. Back at the shore, Caspian, Lucy, and Edmund realize Eustace is missing. When they search for him, they find only his singed clothing. They also find a third sword of a Talmar lord. Assuming Eustace is gone forever, they board the ship to sail on, but their departing is interrupted by a new danger. A great dragon attempts to land on the ship. It captures Edmund and flies him back to the island where it has breathed out a fiery message. There's no way to help Eustace. They travel on with Eustace flying above them. Guided by a blue star, they reach the next island. There, a table filled with a feast awaits them. The group now has six of the seven swords. They place them on the table. The blue star descends upon the group and appears to them as a beautiful woman. She tells them that the last sword can be found at Dark Island. But the journey is treacherous. In there, you will need great as the ship reaches Dark Island, a voice calls out warning them to turn back. It is the seventh Lord of Talmar. 
He warns them not to think of what they fear or the darkness will become that very thing. But at that moment, Edmund's mind jumps to his fears. The darkness becomes a terrible sea serpent. The entire crew fights the monster. The Lord of Telmar mistakes Eustace as a threat and throws his sword into Eustace's side. Injured, Eustace flies away and lands on a sandy beach of the Blue Stars Island. There he encounters Aslan the lion, who turns him back into a boy. Eustace has the sword. He races back to the table. And just as Edmund delivers a devastating blow to the serpent, Eustace lays the final sword on the table. Dark Island is destroyed, and out of its wreckage comes many boats filled with the captives sacrificed to the darkness. The ship has one final stop to make. They sail through a sea of white lilies to Aslan's country. There they meet with Aslan face to face. Edmund and Lucy say goodbye to Aslan and to Narnia, as they know they will never return. Aslan creates a door of water for the children, and they walk through back into the room in the house of Eustace Scrub. As the waters recede back into the painting, the children emerge changed, and now as friends. When my cousins left, after the war ended, I miss them with all my heart. a great story and a great movie. And I'm sure, as most of you know, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader was written by that Christian mastermind, C.S. Lewis. Um, Now, to get us into the C.S. Lewis spirit, I have a little challenge for us this morning. It's called Test Your C.S. Lewis IQ. So the first question is, what do the initials C.S. stand for? Here. Okay, okay. We've got some experts in the room, I can tell. All right, so those... For those of you who didn't hear, our options are Charles Samuel, Cecil Sherman, or Clive Staples. And answer is, say it all together. Okay, very nice. Um, And how cruel. Um, (laughs) Our second question is, Lewis was a professor of what discipline? A, literature, B, theology, or C, philosophy? A, okay. All right. And the answer is literature. He taught at Oxford and at Cambridge. And um, apparently, this was a total scandal, he argued that there was no such thing as the English Renaissance. So I know you all are shocked. and (laughs) I was too. So, okay. Finally, last question. Due to his horrible name, C.S. Lewis preferred to be called A, Bill, (laughs) B, Kip, or C, Jack? Answer is, okay, and then this one's a little hard, apparently. Okay, answer is C, Jack. Um, and, you know, who can blame him? Um, but yeah, that was his preferred name was, was to be called Jack. And I think if you got any of those three questions right, um, you have a pretty decent C.S. Lewis IQ. And if you got all three, well, I, I guess I'd say you are clearly a well-studied Lewis Scholar. Um, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader is the third book in the Chronicles of Narnia series. It's my favorite book of the seven. 
How can you be a story of adventure at sea, of treasure, of living nightmares and invisible creatures? I have a very high regard for C.S. Lewis, and I know I'm not alone in my adoration of him. I know many of us grew up with his stories at our bedside. Um, but if you're anything like me, to the same degree that you've been delighted by his fantasy writing, you found yourself lost and confused by his nonfiction works like The Abolition of Man. It's really heavy and difficult stuff. He had such a brilliant mind. And have you ever wondered, like me, what motivated him to write what is considered children's fiction? Before I realized that I wanted to pursue a degree in counseling, I got my undergraduate degree in English literature, simply because I love literature. I knew I wasn't built with the heart to become a teacher, and so in many ways a literature degree was fairly impractical. But um, when I finally decided to apply to Denver Seminary's counseling program, I didn't have the psychology degree that most of my peer applicants had. So I had to defend the idea that my literature degree had, in fact, prepared me for a counseling program. As I pondered the essay questions required for the application, I found myself realizing that the study of literature, of stories which almost always involve subjects of human behavior, personal relationships, motivation, and the events that the characters find themselves in, I realized that the study of literature is the study of psychology. It's just a different approach. And that is exactly what I claimed on my application, and it seemed to work. Um, now that I've finished my degree, I haven't changed my mind either. In fact, there's an entire counseling theory devoted to the idea of personal story promoting psychological healing. As humans, we live out story every day. And story is important in many disciplines in life. Granted, there's a huge difference generally between yours or my everyday story and a story we might read in a book. My everyday story might consist of grocery shopping and game playing and Facebook status updating, um, the mundane of everyday life. Generally speaking, we don't find ourselves living a fairy tale life. But think for a moment of a story that completely captivates you. A story that when you first read the book or first saw the movie, you were so completely drawn in that for a short time, reality was indiscernible from the story. Think of a story that so completely captivated you that you mourned its ending. Have you ever delayed finishing a book or dreaded the end of a movie because you knew that once it was finished, you could never go back to being right there in the middle of the tale, in the place where you didn't know it was coming next, but where you anticipated each word or scene because for that small amount of time, your reality was caught up in the story? Have you ever lost track of time because you were so drawn in? It's almost as if story gives us the opportunity to transcend the chronology of our everyday. Now, I told you earlier that I'm cheating this morning, and so I've already broken some of the rules of the God in the Movie series, so I'm just going to keep breaking on rules, keep on, keep on breaking rules. And so um, now I want to share with you a part of the voyage of the Don Shredder, the book, which was not in the movie. But I think it's very important understanding this idea of story and why it is spiritually and Christologically important to us. Remember the part of the movie where Lucy is forced by the invisible creatures to find a spell book and read a spell to make them visible. We saw a little clip of it in the movie. 
in the film. In the book version, Lucy thumbs through the pages of the spell book, and she comes across many different spells. Some she is tempted to read because they promise things like beauty. And then we come to this short little scene. On the next page, she came to a spell for the refreshment of spirit. The pictures were fewer here, but very beautiful. And what Lucy found herself reading was more like a story than a spell. It went on for three pages, and before she had read to the bottom of the page, she had forgotten that she was reading at all. She was living in the story as if it were real, and, on the, and all the pictures were real too. When she had got to the third page and come to the end, she said, that is the loveliest story I have ever read or ever shall read in my whole life. Oh, I wish I could have gone on reading it for 10 years. At least I'll read it over again. But here the part of the magic of the book came into play. You couldn't turn back. The right-hand pages, the ones ahead, could be turned. The left-hand pages could not. Oh, what a shame, said Lucy. I did so want to read it again. Well, at least I must remember it. Let's see. It was about, about, oh dear, it's all fading away again. And even this last page is going blank. This is a very queer book. How can I have forgotten? It was about a cup and a sword and a tree and a green hill. I, I know that much, but I can't remember. And what shall I do? And she never could remember. And ever since that day, what Lucy means by a good story is a story which reminds her of the forgotten story in the magician's book. According to a writer named Gilbert Mylander, in this brief little passage of the book, we can find Lewis's entire motivation for writing fantasy stories. Mylander claims that the very nature of human existence, conceived in Christian terms, is best understood within narrative. In other words, the best way to understand ourselves is within story, particularly as we're trying to understand ourselves within the Christian story. We've already discussed the idea that we live out story every day, but there's more to the importance of understanding ourselves in terms of story. And here's the reason. As humans, we are finite. We are stuck in time in the chronology of our personal history. Time does not stop or move backwards. It's always going forward. And as humans, we have both a beginning and an end. However, as spiritual beings, we are also eternal. We know that the end of our lives does not mean the end of our existence. And Lewis believed that life occurs within the tension of these two extremes. But Lewis also believed that the way to escape this tension is through story, the idea of getting lost out of time, if you will. Story speaks to both our humanity and our eternalness. Story also allows us to relate to one another on a very personal level. Lewis makes the point that when we are asked to describe our faith and to talk about how we became Christians, we usually reply by telling our story. We don't talk about complex theology to explain our position on heady ideas like predestination or saving grace. It's our story which is compelling. And according to Lewis, it's in our stories that even things like theological paradoxes are resolved. Furthermore, it's a story that allows us to break free of our finite existence and transcend, for just a while, time itself. 
And that's what we read Lucy doing in that bit of the voyage of the Don Treader we just read. So to recap, we're investigating why story was so important to a brilliant mind like C.S. Lewis. And we've discovered that first, we are involved in story every day in the storyline of our own lives. B, we're also aware of the power of stories to fascinate us so that we become wrapped up in the tale almost as if through story the reality of time is forgotten. And C, story has the ability to make complex ideas work together where theology might fall short. Biblically, we can see how the idea of story is monumentally important. The Bible itself is story, telling of the creation of humankind, its fall, and of a God who refuses to give up on his creation. How often have we heard the how often have we heard of God referred to as the author of our lives? Even our metaphors for God involve story. And then, of course, in the Bible, we find the greatest of stories. God became flesh, was born, was crucified, and resurrected. Mylander makes the point that if God is the author of our lives, the advent of Jesus is the point at which he wrote himself into the story, wrote himself into the timeline of history so that he became a character like you and me. I love that idea. God wrote himself into the story of humanity. Okay. Now, I realize at this point we've gotten pretty far away from our movie du jour. So let's bring it back around. I want to focus on the character of Eustace. Now, if you've seen the movie or read the book, then you know that Eustace is the kind of person that... Uh, exemplifies the word unpleasant. Um, he complains a ton. He's rude and ungrateful. And in the movie, um, even his voice is kind of annoying. They did a really good job picking their actor. Um, but rather than describe, let's watch a little clip so we can get the full Eustace experience. Oh, yes. Follow the imaginary blue star, the island of Ramandudu. Play the seven steak knives at the table of the talking lion. Ninnies. What is Okay, so not really the guy, kind of guy you'd want hanging around too long. Um, if you remember from the recap, at this point Eustace is turned into a dragon because, the movie explains, the cuff he put on his arm was dragon's treasure, and dragon's treasure is, after all, enchanted. 
But I think we can all agree that Eustace was something of a dragon even before he took on a dragon's shape. And here again, the movie diverges from the book. And again, I prefer the book story. Because in the movie, Eustace goes on to be something of a hero as a dragon. He helps fight the terrible sea monster at the story's end and is generally appreciated for his dragonness. But the book tells a different story. In the book, the story of Eustace's return to boyhood begins with a lion who instructs Eustace to follow him. Eustace obeys and the lion leads him to a mountaintop. And on the mountaintop, Eustace is surprised to find a steaming well that is something like a bath with marble sides and marble stairs leading down into it. Eustace is in pain because of the cuff. It had fit him so loosely when he was a boy, but as a dragon, it's now digging into his huge dragon arms. And so Eustace longs to get into the waters to soothe his aching arm. He starts towards the water, but the lion stops him. He, te he tells him that Eustace must first undress if he wants to wade into the waters. And Eustace is puzzled. He certainly isn't wearing any dragon-sized clothing, but suddenly he remembers that as a dragon, he's a reptile, and reptiles shed their skin. And so Eustace begins scratching at his dragon skin. His scales become, begin coming off, and soon Eustace can see that he's left a dragon suit on the ground beside him. Eustace begins again towards the bath, but just as he takes his first step, forward, he sees that his leg still has the scales of a dragon. He tries again to scratch away his scales, but again, he remains a dragon. Three times he tries to rid himself of his dragon form, but he's unsuccessful. Finally, the lion says to Eustace, you will have to let me undress you. And Eustace allows the lion to scrape away at him with his sharp lion's claws. Eustace describes the pain he feels, which is both terrible and wonderful. Terrible because the claws are so sharp and cut so deep. Wonderful because it means he's shedding that dragon form, which had weighed him down. Finally, the lion throws Eustace into the waters, and Eustace realizes that he's no longer in pain. He's become a boy again. In the book, Eustace tells the story to his cousin Edmund, and Edmund replies, I think you have seen Aslan. Allegorically, in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is Jesus. And when we think about this little scene as an allegory, its connection to personal salvation and baptism is fairly obvious. We feel the pain and agony of our sin. Desiring to be free from the anguish of sin, we fight to destroy it but we realize we are insufficient to free ourselves from its grip. We need a savior, and ultimately, it's Jesus who frees us from our sin. Baptism is the symbolic cleansing. And we can easily connect scripture to the scene with Eustace. 2 Corinthians 5:17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Eustace is a new creation, and his behavior in the rest of the story is testament to that newness. We talked about this idea of story and that God wrote himself into the storyline of all history. And so while 2 Corinthians 5.17 has immediate and obvious application to personal salvation, in the context of the greater chapter of 2 Corinthians, it also refers to the great story of the restoration of all God's creation, 
of the entire world. It's important to realize that personal salvation cannot be understood from the cosmic restoration that Jesus' incarnation has begun. And this is a restoration which we will not see completed until Jesus returns to collect those who love him. Now we have two layers of story going. There's the universal historical story which God has written himself into. In the Eustace scene of the voyage of the Don Treader, however, we now see the subplot of this grand story. We witness Aslan enter Eustace's personal storyline. Let that idea, that idea sink, sink in. Rather than saying something impersonal like, and Eustace found Aslan and got saved, C.S. Lewis gives us a personal story of Eustace's meeting with Aslan. And it is hopelessly symbolic and wonderfully beautiful. It moves us. It removes us from our own reality and places us inside the best personal story Eustace will ever tell. Jesus enters our storyline. We use terms like got saved or found God, but those are such a shallow rendering of a beautiful story. Jesus, who wrote himself into the history of humanity, writes himself into each of our personal storylines. There's that moment when we realize we are so encrusted in our dragon scales that we cannot hope to shed it ourselves. Willing to accept God's purification, we become ourselves, but as a new creation and with a great story. So what's the takeaway this morning? First and foremost, it should be that you go home and read this book if you haven't, and if you have, reread it. The movie was okay, but it missed the best parts, in my opinion. Rather than tell you what I think you should walk away with today, though, I prefer to send you with some points of contemplation. Think about when Jesus entered the storyline of your life. Who have you told? Have you ever written it down? Have you ever told it as the beautiful story it is, owned it as your personal story of God coming in as a character in your personal timeline? Have you ever even thought of it as a beautiful story? And finally, becoming a new creation is an ongoing process. We're not yet perfect. When did you last allow Jesus to remove your dragon scales? They build up every once in a while. I'm going to hand this now over to Dave to close us up. Thank you so much for allowing me to be a part of your journey today to find God in the movies. Man, my kids make me think. Thank you, Manda. Thank you so much for sharing with us this morning. Let's stand together for our closing prayer and our benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. See you next week. Have a great week.